0: Welcome to the Mountain Brook Baptist Church podcast. We pray that this message will help you in your walk with Christ. The title of Dr. Spahn's sermon today is Heirs by Faith. The big idea is that the Lord reconfirms his promise to give Abraham offspring that will become many nations. Paul shows that this promise is ultimately fulfilled in all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to two places in Scripture as we continue our sermon series looking at various episodes in the life of Abraham, and then looking at New Testament explanations of some of these episodes to um, understand better some important doctrines of our faith and who it is that God calls us to be. So this morning, we're going to be in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. It's found on page 11 in the Pew Bible, if you use that one. Then we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. That's on page 825. Mary mentioned that we have uh, Holy Week coming up fairly soon, and I just want to reiterate what she said. Um, Monday through Wednesday, a good friend of mine, Mark Ginellet, will be here with us. And if those of you who've had a chance to hear Mark before um, know how talented he is and just a great, sincere person, and so I want you to put those dates on your calendar. He is a professor of mine at Beeson. Um, he's been teaching in various spots around town. And um, anyways, I hope you'll come and make, a, and make an effort. And then Mary Feld mentioned on Thursday night, Monday, Thursday, she'll be preaching that night. So you want to make sure that you're here for that as well. So be in prayer for that, for that week in the life of our church. Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and you will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I'll make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And then from Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Before faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How can we best grow the church? How can we best grow the church? Now, as you might imagine, as the new pastor of the church, I've heard that question in some form several times. It's something that all of us obviously think about. We we would like more and more people to be um, engaged in the life of our church, to experience the new life that's possible through faith in Christ and the fellowship that we have here in our church. And I think initially our thoughts, we think about more people being involved in the life of our church are on the external things that we might do to improve our impression or engage more faithfully our community. And there is a part of that as we think about being more faithful to reach more people for Christ. You can ask Vince Blackerby, I'm on a tirade of sorts these days to improve our facilities, to make things look better and more welcoming to people in our community because we want to put our best foot forward and invite people and not unnecessarily prevent them from being a part of what's happening here. You can read church growth experts that might help us think about how to analyze the community and know better who lives around the church and how we might faithfully engage them. And all of these things are surely important. But I think if you and I think about the future of our church and attracting more people to be a part of what God's doing here, And we think only of external things like paint and lights or offering programs that are more attractive to people. We'll miss out on what I think will be the most powerful thing to draw people. And it will be us growing in our understanding of all that God has done for us in Jesus and who we are now in Christ. And then living into that reality. You see, there's a part of us that it's it's easy to confess our faith in the truth of the Apostles' Creed, for example. And to with our lips say these are all things that we believe. And it's quite a different thing to then start living our lives as if those things are true. That there would be congruence between what we say we believe and how we live our lives. And the more that we understand all that God has done for us in Jesus, and the more that we start to live our lives in a way that's consistent with what we say we believe, it's it's my belief, at least, that people will be drawn to that kind of community. People who profess the good news with their lips, and they show it by their lives. In Genesis 17, the Lord once again reaffirms his covenant promises to Abram, You might remember last week we looked at Genesis chapter 16 and how Sarah and Abram decided that they were going to take matters into their own hands. They had been in Canaan for 10 years. Still no child had been um, given to them. So Sarah says, well, why don't we just kind of make this work in ways that we can make it work? You have a child by Hagar, and we'll continue on and experience God's blessings. When you get to Genesis chapter 17... The Lord comes to Abram another time, and he tells them, now Abram's 99. Anybody in the sanctuary 99 this morning? Even the oldest among us isn't 99 today. And the Lord comes to him at 99 years old, and he reaffirms this promise that that one day, Abram, you're going to have descendants. And he even changes Abram's name to Abraham as this powerful um, way in which Abraham's supposed to understand his identity and all that God is going to do through him. Nations will come from you, God says. Kings will come from you. And if you keep reading down, Sarah, her name is changed a bit. In our English translations, the eyes turn to an H. And then the Lord says, this child you're going to have, His name is going to be Isaac, which means son of laughter. And it really is preposterous at this point what God is saying he's going to do in Abram and Sarah's lives. That he's going to give them a child in their old age. It seems laughable. But God nonetheless continues to affirm, this is what I'm going to do in your lives. And you're going to have offspring. You're going to have descendants. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Again, I don't think there's any way that Abraham could have anticipated what that would look like when Christ would come in the fullness of time. When you start reading through the New Testament and the ways in which the first followers of Jesus tried to wrap their minds around this new identity that they had been given through faith in Jesus Christ, it's quite evident that they continued to struggle with understanding old categories and how it is that their lives had been transformed by what God had done for them in Jesus. When you read the book of Acts, for example, and you read in Acts chapter 11, persecution was happening in Jerusalem. They were forced to flee And they went up to a place called Antioch. And they preached the good news there first to whom? The Jews. Which would have been the pattern of the apostles. But they also preached, according to Acts 11, to the Hellenists or to the Greeks. And in their amazement, these Greeks responded to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith. And now they had a real crisis on their hands. What are we going to do with all these Gentiles who are flooding into the church and believing? How in the world are we going to understand what it looks like for all of us to be brought together into one unified family of faith? One of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't clean up all the messy things that were happening in the early church. You and I live in a very politically correct world, and we're almost terrified to say anything that might be controversial. But when you read the New Testament and you see Peter going to Cornelius' house, for example, he kind of stands outside and he says, y'all know that I'm not supposed to come in here. I'm not supposed to be hanging out with people like you. And they had all these years and years of cultural training where they had been shaped to understand people in terms of categories. Are you Jewish? Are you Greek? Are you slave? Are you free? Are you male? Are you female? And all of these categories meant something for your access in normal life. And so as they were trying to figure out how in the world are we all gonna function together within the community of faith as followers of Jesus, it was quite difficult for them. And this experiment up in Antioch produced a lot of controversy. And one of the ways that we see it addressed is in Galatians chapter 2. Paul talks about a time when he was in Antioch and Peter came up to see what was going on. And Listen to what Paul writes. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When I say that, you all should say, (gasps) He was doing what? He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Perhaps you've experienced this before in your own life. That maybe when you're away from your group, you're away from the people who know you best. Maybe you act in different ways. But when people from your hometown show up, you start going back and reverting to your old ways. And that, that power of how we act and how we're influenced by people who know us best. And so when members of the circumcision party came to Antioch, Peter was not going to enjoy table fellowship with the Gentiles. Because he knew what reaction and response he would get. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, there's few things that you would most dread being called more than a hypocrite. Isn't that correct? How offensive is it if someone says, well, you're, you're just a hypocrite. That is, that you're not acting in line with what you say you believe. You're putting on a show outside, but you're not acting in line with that. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul knew that this was not a secondary matter. I often read the New Testament, and I wonder why Paul didn't just take the easy road. Why go through all the heartache, why go through all the pain, to try to make Jews and Gentiles live together under one roof in the church? Why not just make Jewish churches and Gentile churches? Why not just let people who came from a Hebrew background live like Hebrews and then let Gentiles live like Gentiles and just let them enjoy peace and unity apart from each other? The Apostle Paul knew that the very gospel was at stake. That if he yielded and he said, Okay, there's first-class Christians and there's second-class Christians, so to speak and not require everyone to live in the same family of faith because of this new identity that they've been given in Jesus, that the gospel would be watered down. That's how important it was for Paul that people know and understand the gospel and then live in a way that was consistent with what they said they believed. And it's this aspect In a little bit of reading, I'm no expert in early uh, Christian history, I'll admit. But I've read some. And from what I've read, the church grew at least in part because they were distinctive when compared with the culture around them. This is what I mean. Imagine this morning that we're in the first century and you looked around the sanctuary. And you know that there's some people here who are Jewish By ethnicity, and others who are Gentiles. You look around, you know that there's some people here who are major players in society, so to speak, and others who are slaves. You look around, and there's male and there's female. And in the first century, again, this had implications for the life that you would enjoy. For example, if you were a slave, you didn't get a proper burial. They would take your body and maybe throw it out in the trash heap. Or if you were a slave, maybe you really didn't get to eat wonderful meals very often. But there were some in the church who were prominent people, and they did. And it was this aspect of each of them coming together and living as equals and like family in the life of the church that was so attractive to people in the first century. As we think about evangelism and growing the church, you and I might think about, well, the first thing we should do is is go out and talk to more people and share the gospel with them. And and that's true. But I imagine if we tried door-to-door evangelism today, it wouldn't work quite as well as maybe it did in the 50s and 60s. They'd see us on the ring doorbell and there, all the lights are going out. Nobody's coming. But the church in the first century didn't do door-to-door evangelism, primarily because they didn't want to end up being crucified for their faith. They didn't go around sharing their faith openly in the way that you and I think about it because there were major repercussions for such an approach in the first century, barring them having a death wish. So what was it? It was this distinctive way that they lived as family members in the community of faith that people saw the way that they lived and they were drawn to this attractive way of life. For example, maybe there was a slave from their church who passed away. Maybe everybody in town knew this person was a slave And in ways that went against what was normal in the culture, the church pulled the resources and they had a proper funeral for this person. Maybe Jews and Gentiles weren't eating together and they came to the church and they thought, what in the world is this? These people are acting like they're actually family members and they have nothing that unites them otherwise. Slaves, free, rich, poor, Jews, Gentiles. This ragtag group of people who found their common identity through faith in Jesus Christ. And it transformed them to the degree that they started living differently and treating each other as equals within the community of faith. You continue through the book of Galatians and Paul's going to look back and he's going to say, this is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham. That it's anticipated in the Old Testament that Abraham's descendants would come from many nations. But as we just said, as we're reading through the book of Acts and the early Christian documents in the New Testament, it's obvious that they didn't just easily live into this. That it took them a long time and the power of the Spirit at work in them. And Paul is writing to the Galatians and he's reminding them I know that everything in you wants to revert, revert back to what you understood and how you lived before Christ came. But to do so would water down and we would lose the gospel in the process. So we pick up Paul's argument in verse 23. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So again, we have this idea that the law was always temporary. The Old Testament law was always provisional. And it showed us what it looked like to be God's people, but the fulfillment of faith came through Jesus Christ, and it radically changed everything. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Through Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, in the sanctuary this morning, there are males and females, correct? And there might be this initial response to Paul saying that you're all sons of God through faith and say, wait a minute, Paul, maybe you should have said children, (laughs) not sons. But when Paul says that all of us through faith are sons of God, what he's trying to communicate to us is that, that each of us, no matter if we're male or female, all of us now have the rights of firstborn sons that each of us now is an heir, and it doesn't matter if you're biologically male or female. This right is for all people who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now all of us are heirs. For as many as of you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I love our baptistry for many reasons, not least of which is it's kind of the size of a small pool. I joke, if anybody's ever missing their kid, they might want to go up to the sanctuary and see if they're doing laps in the baptistry. But it ought to be for us this visible reminder that not just when we're actively baptizing people, but every time we walk in the sanctuary, we look at this baptistry and we're reminded that the mark of this new covenant that we enjoy through faith in Jesus Christ is no longer an outward sign like circumcision that might be limited to some and not open to others. But baptism, no matter who you are or where you're from, no matter your condition, when you place your faith in Jesus, you can be baptized. And it's this sign that your your whole identity now has been transformed, that you are a son of God through faith in Christ, that you're a co-heir with Jesus. And each of us stands on equal ground because of our faith in him. I love that phrase where Paul says, We've put on Christ. We're now clothed with his perfect righteousness. It's not who we are or what we've done. Verse 28 There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to be clear with you this morning. The truth of Scripture is not that if you place your faith in Christ, then all of those distinguishing characteristics of who you are somehow vanish or recede into the background. I was born in South Carolina. That's never going to change. It's a part of who I am, it's where I'm from. Many of you were born here in the great state of Alabama. Never going to change who you are. But here is the thing that now changes. My identity in Jesus Christ supersedes where I'm from. I'm male. Some of you are male and some of you are female. That does not change when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. But what Paul is saying is that now this identity that you've been given through faith in Jesus supersedes that in the sense of your standing before the Lord and the righteousness that you've been given through faith in Jesus and what you can expect to inherit in the life to come. No slave and no free. Some of us are really important people in the world and hold big jobs. Others of us are just young pastors making our way in the world. But in Christ, all of us are equal before the Lord. If we are Christ, then we are Abraham's offspring and we're heirs according to promise. If I'm right, as I look out at the world and think about the struggles that so many people face, I think, in part, people are dying to belong to something. You see it most clearly, I think, in younger people. Lord bless junior high teachers. We pray for you. That's that part of life where you're trying to figure out who in the world you are and your identity and you want to belong and be in. And if you're talented in some way, if you're smart in some way, maybe you distinguish yourself and you can be on the in crowd. And if you're not, maybe you feel like you're left on the outside. But all of us know that that doesn't stop when you get out of the junior high. It doesn't stop when you graduate college. It doesn't stop at any point of your life, but you're analyzing who you are and do I fit in and do I measure up and do I belong? And do I have to be somebody? And the wonderful truth of the gospel is that when we gather together in this church, the identity that God has given us through faith in Jesus Christ is the most important way that we view each other now. And it's not about who we are or where we're from or what we've done or what we've accomplished or what we haven't done or accomplished. But each of us now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we're heirs with Christ. And when we pass from this life, I I, I joke with my children, don't wait on the big inheritance. Work hard, it's not coming. But no matter what they inherit or don't inherit in this life, no matter if you've inherited a ton or if you've just inherited debt, when you pass from this life, the truth is that you will inherit all things through faith in Jesus Christ. And may God give us the grace by the power of his Holy Spirit to love each other and to live into that now, that we're all one in him. I think that is something that people would be drawn to. It's much harder than painting or fixing or it's much harder than programs. If God would give us the grace to increasingly live in line with the truth of the gospel, people I think we'll be drawn to that. I invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that each of us here today, if we've placed our faith in Jesus, we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ and we are heirs, co-heirs with Jesus. And Lord, we, we tend to look at each other and even perhaps at times judge each other based on outward appearances or who we are or where we've come from. We pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see each other as family. That we're all related through our faith in Jesus Christ. And what's important about us most is that new identity that you've given us. Lord, help us to love each other well. Help our community of faith to increasingly become The kind of place where we live in line with what we say we believe and that others would be drawn both by the message that we proclaim and the lives that we live. We offer this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We pray that today's message brought you hope as we continue to love God and live with grace and generosity. Be sure to check back here for more podcasts. And as always, go out and do the Lord's good work.